Good morning. I hope everyone's doing well and uh, has enjoyed their Frontier Days as it's coming to an end. But uh, uh, lots of good stuff going on uh, in the Word this week as well. Just a quick reminder, we're working our way through the New Testament in five years, which is very fast. And we're doing that by doing one chapter a week, uh, which causes us sometimes to have more than one story in an individual sermon. Uh, But uh, you guys are capable of two stories. You're pretty good at that. So I think we're going to be okay with that. Cool thing, uh, Bill just shared with me, I didn't uh, pay any attention to this, but uh, the first Sunday that Bill was here was in 2006, and we were in Acts chapter 9. This is now his second time through the whole New Testament with us, which is pretty cool uh, to see uh, how God just is using this in the lives of people uh, growing up in our church, and uh, I don't know how many of you have been here that long. Some of you have been here much longer than that, so I don't know how much of the Word you've ingested, but uh, pretty exciting stuff. Uh, When we approach the Word, we're always asking ourselves these two very important questions. What is God saying? to me and his word, and then what am I going to do about it? We want to be faithful hearers of the word, which means we're doers also. So we want to bring the word in and see what it means to us in our life, in our circumstances, and how we can play that out. Of course, part of that comes through the gospel. Part of that comes through seeing the godly examples that we see in scripture. Some of it comes through seeing the ungodly examples and deciding not to follow those examples, but just looking for ways uh, to apply the word to our life. Uh, At the end of this, you can sometimes ask yourself, uh, is my understanding of my faith as I see it here making me more like Jesus or or more like a Pharisee? Uh, Just kind of examining how you respond to the word. So uh, here we are now in uh, Acts chapter 9, and we're going to follow now two guys really for most of the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to focus our attention on the ministry of Saul, who becomes Paul, uh, and our ministry that we're going to see through Peter, the Apostle Peter, and we'll get to see both of those guys actively ministering in the Word today. But before that can happen, Saul has to get saved. Uh, You might recall Saul up until this point has been persecuting the church. He's been putting believers in prison. He's been putting believers to death. And so that's where we pick it up here in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around them, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and uh, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drink. So here now Paul has decided to spread his persecution of the Christians, of the disciples of Jesus Christ, outside of Jerusalem. He purposely was working in and around Jerusalem initially, uh, but he's still threatening them. He's talking about imprisonment and murder and all kinds of things that he wants to deal with these guys. But he's now asked permission to uh, spread his mission of terror beyond Jerusalem. He wants to go to the city of Damascus uh, in order to bring persecution there as well. Uh, Damascus is uh, quite a ways away, at least by their 
terms. It's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And so for him to take this journey to direct to Damascus, it'd be about two weeks if he was walking, less if he was using animals, but uh, a little bit different world for them. You know, we go 150 miles in a day like it's nothing, but it's a, it's a real decision he's made. He's really going after it if he's going to go 150 miles away uh, to bring these people who happen to be believers in Jesus Christ, to bring them to Jerusalem so they could stand trial and be put to, in some cases, maybe put to death because of their belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God. Uh, he really has something against these guys. Uh, I love this idea, though, as he goes, it says that he's looking to find anybody belonging to the way. And it's a, a term that seems to be used in the early church anyway to describe believers. You only really are going to see it specifically here in the book of Acts. After that, it just more informally becomes the church or the disciples, uh, groups of disciples or the fellowship, uh, not focusing as much on the way. But it has an interesting connection, I think, uh, to the teachings of Jesus. You might recall Jesus in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, he talked about this in a more generic way, but he said, you know, wide is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate that's going to lead to salvation. Uh, essentially, Jesus is that narrow way, he's that narrow gate. And then in John 14, Jesus will say that there's no way to the Father except through him, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so those who are of the way are entering to God through Jesus Christ. It's their lifestyle, this pursuit of faith in Jesus Christ. It's their way to uh, become right in relationship with God. Now, unfortunately, over the years, the the term the way has not just fallen to the side, but has been misused by other groups. And so we don't use it as much anymore. But I, I kind of like the idea. I remember when I was a kid, my mom had a Bible that was the living Bible. And on the cover, it just said, the way. And it had an all black cover. And then inside the words were all these people's faces. And uh, I thought it was pretty cool. I didn't know anything about Bible translations back then. I wasn't even a Christian. Uh, but I'm like, that's a cool looking book right there. The way. I don't know what it is. But then uh, sadly, uh, somebody uh, turned uh, their own religion out of this. Uh, somebody created a cult called The Way, uh, didn't believe that Jesus was God and all kinds of things. And so now nobody wants to associate with The Way. Uh, so we don't use it anymore either. But uh, interesting idea anyway. It's just this lifestyle. Those of The Way are the ones who are going through Jesus Christ to find salvation, to find a path to God. Uh, they're in The Way. So Saul uh, of Tarsus is now looking for those people. So he's on his trip to Damascus as he's traveling uh, and he's approaching Damascus. It says suddenly this light from heaven flashes around him. Uh, and in another place, he's going to describe this light as being brighter than the sun. So if you've ever made this mistake, I know you're not supposed to do this, but like when the eclipses are happening, the first thing they say is never look at the sun. And the first thing every one of us did as kids was look right at the sun. We're waiting. Oh, I just looked at those lights. Those are bright. Um, <laughs> Father, is that you? Um, anyway, don't look up just so you know. Uh, but uh, this, this amazing bright light flashes around him, it blinds him, and he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now he repeats the name there, there's an intensification similar to when you were kids and your mom would use your middle name, like if my mom said, Sean, William, like it's time to pay attention. If she said, Sean, eh, 
I don't always have to pay attention, but if she says my middle name, well, here in the same sense, you see this oftentimes in Scripture when there's this trying to really let some people know that what I'm about to say is important. There's this repetition. So Jesus says, Saul, Saul, and he asks a weird question, why are you persecuting me? Well, Jesus is not the one that Saul's imprisoning. Jesus is not the one that Saul is putting to death. But Jesus takes it very personal when people persecute his people, his followers, his disciples. Uh, You see this actually laid out in his ministry in a couple of different ways, Uh, but the one that really sticks out to me is in uh, Matthew chapter 26, um, where he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said, Jesus, I don't really remember doing any of that stuff. I don't remember visiting you. I don't remember giving you a cup of water. And he says, as much as you do it to the least of one of my children, you've done it to me. And the same is true when it comes to persecution. How you treat believers in Jesus Christ equates to how you treat Jesus, which I think is a very important thing for us to consider because I have been uh, somewhat um, saddened to see believers who feel like the most important thing they can do is attack other believers. Not, not, not correction, not gentle loving, I want to lead you away from sin, but they just find no problem with attacking other believers in Jesus Christ for things they do, for things they say. Even if those things are out of place, there's an appropriate way to approach that. A thing I'm seeing that's really popular, and, and I hate to say it this way, but it's, it's, I think, sadly popular amongst younger Christians. And this is what happens when you're a young person already and you come to Christ. Young people are passionate about whatever it is they're about. And so if it's a video game, they're passionate about that video game. If it's a movie, they're passionate about a movie. And if it's Jesus, they're going to be passionate about that. But what they see is injustice or difficulties in the church, things that they don't feel like match up to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And rather than just living those things out themselves and gently correcting people, they go out attacking and saying, the whole church is a mess, it's miserable. And I keep trying to remind them, the whole church is the bride of Jesus Christ. It's the body of Jesus Christ. Maybe you might want to treat it with a little bit respect. In the same sense here, Saul is persecuting believers. But Jesus takes that personal as if it's happening to him. It really does kind of change your perspective on how we treat others. And when the scripture says give preference to one another in Christ, I think that's what it's telling the believer. And what it's telling the unbeliever, be careful you're playing with fire. Maybe quite literally. Well, in this case, he says, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Saul doesn't know who's speaking at this point. And so he says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And this is where Jesus gives him instructions to go into the cities on his way to Damascus. He's going to go into Damascus and wait for further instructions from Jesus. Now, all the guys that were traveling along with them... They have no idea what's going on. They, they can hear the voice. In other places, it even indicates they can't actually understand it. They just recognize there's a voice there. But they don't see what Paul or Saul is seeing. 
They're not fully grasping what's going on here. Uh, and so they're just kind of blown away all this, but all they know is Saul can no longer see. And so they have to lead him by the hand because he couldn't see a thing. I love how it points out there. And his eyes were open. It wasn't like he was just like, I can't see anything. Where is everything? Open your eyes. Oh, there you go. Okay. Whew. Scary for a minute there because that happens sometimes. But he literally could not see. His eyes were open. He was blinded by this light. Just a little personal aside for me. I've looked at this at different times in different ways. But the thing that really strikes me right now uh, is, is this. Man, I would, I would give anything for this road to Damascus moment. If I had to be blinded to hear the voice of God, go for it. Like what Paul is experiencing here, this supernatural moment that not everybody gets, it's amazing. There's going to be long-term difficulties, and I was corrected on this when I was in college. I was like, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. He goes, oh, you want to get beat up every time you enter a new town? Well, I didn't say all that, but... So there were some long-term consequences to knowing Jesus so personally, to having heard the voice of the resurrected Jesus Christ, which maybe I forgot to mention that. He died, right? Like Saul knows this guy died on the cross. Now he's hearing from him. There's some consequences in Paul's life. Uh, later, Jesus is going to say, I need to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. It almost sounds vindictive, but it's really not. Jesus has promised this to all believers, that if you do truly follow him, the possibility of suffering is real, that those who hate Jesus will hate you. There's a very real nature to that. But I would surrender those things, I think. I say it quite boldly now because I don't have the opportunity to turn that light on and make it happen. But that, that's a powerful thing that the Apostle Paul, who's currently just some guy named Saul, he's getting to experience Jesus in a mighty and powerful way which tells me that God has an important plan, an important purpose for him with his life. And so they bring him to Damascus. Uh, he's going to be there three days. Uh, he's not going to be able to see. He's not going to be able to drink before God intervenes in this blindness. Now, some people think that this momentary blindness had long-term effects on the Apostle Paul. Uh, we don't know that for sure. We just know that he has eye problems the rest of his life. And that you can kind of see that in his different writings. As he writes, he'll say, look, you can tell I signed it. Look how big the letters are. You know, So just this idea that he was struggling. He always had these eyesight problems. Some people relate it to this. Uh, we don't know if that's the case. Uh, some people think that he maybe had malaria and one of the long-term effects of malaria surviving it back then would be a blindness of sorts. But uh, either way, there is going to be this long-term effect if he's no longer persecuting the believers in Jesus Christ after this moment. That really puts an end to the persecution once you meet the resurrected Jesus Christ. So uh, here in verse 10, we get to see another disciple who's going to get to experience God in a powerful way. Uh, verse 10, it says, Now, there was a disciple uh, of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. But I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and, and, he, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He got up, was baptized, and took food and was strengthened. Well, Ananias is somewhat of a nobody. This is not the same Ananias we met earlier in the book of Acts who was uh, put to death because he was lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is a different guy, same name. Uh, The name Ananias just means God is gracious. Uh, But this guy, Ananias, he's a disciple of Jesus Christ in Damascus. We don't know how he got there. Uh, Damascus doesn't get mentioned before this in the scripture. There's no specific indication that Jesus went there. It's possible that maybe he uh, or someone he knew was part of the believers that were forced out of Jerusalem when persecution came. They've relocated to Damascus. But either way, this guy is a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he... As a disciple of Jesus Christ, receives this vision where God speaks to him, or the Lord speaks to him. And of course, he gives a good answer. Here I am, Lord, like whatever you need, I'm ready for it. Uh, That's a good way to respond when God speaks to you. And Jesus gives him instructions to go to the street called Straight, Straight Street, to the house of Judas, different than the Judas that died earlier, one of the apostles who uh, rejected Jesus, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, because this guy saw in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now think about this is an average disciple, and the reason I point that out is there, there was this difficulty for me, and maybe for other people, that Early on, you see that the apostles were used mightily. And in our minds, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, the apostles could just do things that nobody else could do. No. Anyone can do anything that God wants them to do. Nobody can do anything God doesn't want them to do or allow them to do. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't make God speak to you. You can't make him do it. If he doesn't want to give you a vision, you're not going to get a vision. But if he wants you to have a vision like he wanted Ananias, he chose Ananias. So Ananias is a guy you're going to want to hang out with in heaven. When you get to heaven, you're going to be like, i got to talk to Ananias. Guy's just hanging out in Damascus doing his thing, just a regular everyday Joe like me. He got a vision from God. He heard the voice of our Lord. And then he gets to heal somebody. And he doesn't just heal anybody He heals the Apostle Paul of blindness. This guy got to experience some stuff. And then he gets to baptize the Apostle Paul. Like, Ananias, that's my dream right there. Like, I don't really see myself being the Apostle Paul any day. I don't think I'm ever going to be like that. But I sure would love to minister to somebody who becomes like that. You guys are my only hope. I'm going to be honest with you. (laughs) 
I just want to see you guys do amazing things from the Lord. And I'll be like, I knew that guy. That gal was one of our Sunday school teachers. Look at her go. You know, that to me, that's exciting. Ananias, man, so cool to be able to do all these things. But anyway, it is interesting when, when uh, Jesus says, Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to lay hands on this guy, Saul of Tarsus, and I want you to bring sight back to him. Uh, Ananias is like, I'm not sure if you've heard, Lord. <laughs> Saul's a bad dude. <laughs> He's the one in Jerusalem that's been torturing your people. And Jesus is like, I know but I got plans for this one. And man, again, God has plans for this one. The plan for the Apostle Paul to be his chosen instrument. Again, I keep calling him Paul. I'm jumping forward in the story. I know Saul of Tarsus will later be renamed Paul, but uh, here Saul is being told through a vision that Ananias had that he is the chosen instrument of God to preach the name of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, to kings and the sons of Israel. And you're going to see all of that happen, by the way, in the book of Acts. He's going to preach to the sons of Israel here in a minute. He's going to preach to kings at the end of the book. And he's going to preach to the Gentiles all throughout the book, starting in chapter uh, 13. You're going to see him do these things. The one who used to persecute now becomes the disciple maker. Now, it is pretty impressive when we think of it in the gravity in which he persecuted. Uh, but let's be clear, to a certain extent, all of us, before we were believers in Jesus Christ, persecuted him. Before we believed, we weren't always the nicest people in the world. Now, we didn't represent our God well because we didn't realize he was our God yet. And some of you guys, I'm not naming names, weren't real nice about it. Some of you picked on Christians, you guys. Thankfully, I never did any of that. <laughs> but honestly, there were some of us that were persecutors or mockers of other believers. And yet we came to know Jesus Christ. And now those who were the mockers and the persecutors are the proclaimers, the disciples, the disciplers. It's this change of heart or change of mind that God's doing. Now, what's uh, difficult for me in this passage is there isn't this clean conversion. Like, I would have loved if we would have had this, like, come forward moment where I could actually hear the Apostle Paul say the words, I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. They don't necessarily have that clean moment that I would like to see. Uh, but what they do have is he is going to be, uh, two things are going to happen to him. After he regains his sight, it says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, with, which is, by the way, the, the seal of our inheritance. It's the mark of us being believers in Jesus Christ is that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the evidence of the Holy Spirit becomes evident in your life when you begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That for me was a shocker, by the way. Uh, there, were, there were times in my life where all of a sudden I realized, like, I love this person who's very unlovable right now. That can't be me. I know me. <laughs> it was just this change of heart. There was a new patience, a new gentleness. You know, I haven't kicked the cabinets in my kitchen in decades. 
I used to kick things anytime something went wrong. I just kick whatever was near me. Don't be near me when something went wrong. I was going to kick it. Didn't matter. There's this new patience there. I'm not saying I've never had anger since then, but it's just a difference. There's just this change in me. And then there's the gifting of the Holy Spirit. It becomes, again, this evidence of the seal that you're a believer. You start to see that you can do things for the kingdom of God, that God has created you to accomplish these things for his kingdom. Maybe it's hospitality. In my case, maybe it's teaching. You guys get to decide that. Uh, But for some of us, there's just these moments where all of a sudden we realize that the gifts, the talents that we have were from God, and he wants to use those to advance his kingdom to equip other believers to strengthen the church. The Apostle Paul is going to get to experience that. And then that moment in verse 18, again, not a little detail, just that he got up and was baptized. Then he took food and then he was strengthened. So what do you think Paul's going to do now that his whole life has changed? Uh, You know, most of us would think to ourselves, maybe it's time that we start to do some study and start to figure some stuff out. Or we're going to have to reassess our life now. I think it's time for me to go home. Uh, quit my job as a persecutor. I'm going to have to return all my persecution tools to the temple and uh, turn in my, uh, my, my persecution badge or whatever he had going on. Like He's got to make some changes to his life. And he's going to, but he's not going to be subtle about his changes. Look here. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. Well, this is, this is crazy. Immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Remember, one of the things Jesus said is, you're going to proclaim my name uh, to the sons of Israel. He starts right away. He goes to the synagogues. He goes to the place where he formerly would have been seen as this great traveling guy that's coming through. Everybody would have been excited to see him, but he goes to the synagogues and he's changed his tune quite a bit. He's, no, look, Jesus is the son of God. These people are blown away because like just two days ago, they heard Saul's coming to town to kill anybody who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a, this is a complete turnaround in the life of Paul, and immediately he begins to proclaim. Now, on one side, I want to encourage you in that and say this. When you come to Jesus Christ, it's important that you immediately begin to proclaim that. But you're not going to necessarily be gifted in the same ways as the Apostle Paul. And you don't have all the knowledge that the Apostle Paul probably had. Being quite a knowledgeable Jew, he knew quite a bit of the Old Testament. And he could quickly start to put these things in line. So maybe you can't do that immediately. But what you can immediately do is tell people what you believe. You can pretty much immediately do that. And I remember I I struggled a lot with that. 
when I was a new believer. In fact, when I first got saved, um, it was this really awkward thing because I didn't go to church. My parents didn't go to church. I didn't go to church. I started going to church with a friend uh, who tricked me into going to church, by the way. He had this great evangelistic technique. He would invite me to spend the night on Saturday night. And we'd stay up all night watching USA up all night and stealing Oreos from his mom when she was asleep. And uh, then, you know, like 3 a.m., we would crawl into bed, and like 7 a.m., she'd come knocking on the door. Okay, boys, time to go to church. I'm like, what is this church you speak of? I'm in bed, and I've had 42 bags of Oreos. I can't move right now. But anyway, we end up at church, and I eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I remember one Sunday after church, my parents had picked me up. And they wanted to go look at open houses. And so I'm in the back of the car and we're going to look at open houses. And I feel like I need to say something. And so I just very sheepishly, just like no, no ability to really describe anything. I just said, I went forward at church today. And my mom turns around and goes, that's nice. So anyway, this house, is, <laughs> and that was the end of it. And so I didn't say another word about it until a few weeks later, the pastor just shows up at my house. Are you kidding me? <laughs> he just shows up at my house? What's wrong with this guy? And he wants my parents to know. And then they had a fuller understanding. But all I could really express to him in that moment is what I knew. I went forward today at church. I didn't quite comprehend it all. I didn't have enough information, but that's what I had. And so that's what I shared. Now, Paul is going to be preaching actually two things in the synagogues. First of all is that Jesus is the Son of God. I think that one's important. Uh, the way I like to describe it is, if a horse has a son, that son is always a horse. If a dog has a son, that son is always a dog. And if God has a son, then his son is God. This is important. He, he's claiming deity for Jesus. He's the son of God. That's a powerful statement that he's making here. He could be put to death for that blasphemous statement, right? The second thing he's doing, though, in verse 22, and this is the one I think most of us would probably have struggled with initially, but because of his Jewish background, he was able to do this. He was proving in verse 22 that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He's arguing this case that Jesus is. He's taking these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and he's saying Jesus fits these perfectly. And he's doing it so well that it says he's confounding the Jews. They can't answer him. And so oftentimes when somebody can't answer a question, their response is to attack the person who's bringing the question, to attack the person who's confounded them with knowledge. And that's, in fact, what they're going to do. They begin to plot against Saul. Uh, they're waiting to put him, it says in verse 23, to do away with him. In verse 24, to put him to death. And this is cool. In verse 25, his disciples. Paul already has disciples. So his disciples are sneaking him out of town. Now, we don't know how long he was there. It just says uh, that he had been there for many days. It seems like, uh, and I don't want to get into the details, but in Galatians chapter 1, Paul does mention his time in Damascus. And he was there for at least a good part of three years. 
And so anywhere from maybe 14 months to three years, he was there. But during that time, he came to Christ, was baptized, and began to disciple other people in the synagogues, convincing other Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And then those disciples are now protecting his life, and he might as well get rid of or get used to it, because this is what's going to happen to him over and over and over again. So from there in verse 26 now, uh, he's going to go to Jerusalem, it says. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid, makes sense, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Well, when, they, uh, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So Paul is going to move from Damascus back to Jerusalem, but everybody in Jerusalem knows him as the persecutor of the believers. That's how everybody knows him. He's the persecutor of the believers. So when he gets to the town, none of the disciples want to hang out with him. I'm sorry, you're just going to take your Bible and go home, Paul. You can't stay here. I don't trust that you're really a believer. Which, by the way, that was the story of some of you when you came to Christ. Your friends and family were like, "Mm, no, no, I'm not buying it. It's been one of my pleasures uh, being a pastor in the city that I graduated high school. I grew up here in Cheyenne. And every once in a while, someone from high school will walk in and they'll see me and they'll just kind of look around and turn around and be like, "Mm, no, this doesn't seem right. (laughs) Mm, No. And uh, then they let me know afterwards, which is always good for my confidence that uh, they thought of me so horribly in high school. But uh, it's just kind of a a reality that this is the deal that that Paul was going through. It's just this this idea that they didn't want to associate it with him. But thankfully, Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement... Barney, as I like to call him, a good friend of mine. He defends Paul. He spends some time with Paul. He even takes Paul to the apostles so that he can meet with them. Uh, And then Paul does all the things that he does. He starts preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, that's not going to last very long. He's going to get sideways with a group of Hellenistic Jews, which means uh, they're Jews uh, by heritage, but they've uh, acclimated to the Greek society that they happen to live in, and so they're dressing like Jews. They're speaking Greek instead of Hebrew Aramaic, uh, and um, as they're doing all of this, they kind of have that Greek appearance, so they've become Greek in nature in the same way that you know, we might be saying, oh, you know, we're Christians, we're part of the engrafted into the nation of Israel, but none of us are dressing or acting Jewish, right? We look pretty American. Like, that's just how we dress. We dress like Americans. That's what they were doing. They had acclimated to their culture, but they're having this argument with Saul to point again where they want to put him to death in verse 29. Like I said, Saul, just get used to it. And so the brethren in Jerusalem, they sneak him out of town. They bring him first to Caesarea. Uh, You know, that's uh, not too far away. You'll get to see here in uh, Caesarea that he's ultimately going to be moved on, it says, then to Tarsus. That's his hometown. So he goes over to Caesarea. He goes up to Tarsus, 670 miles away from Jerusalem. He should be safe there. It's his hometown Nobody knows what he was doing down in Jerusalem. And so now he's going to be in Tarsus. He's going to be doing ministry there. 
Uh, ultimately, though, in chapter 11, Barnabas is going to go find him again, bring him to Antioch, and from Antioch, Barnabas and Paul or Saul, they'll start what's called the first missionary journey from Antioch, and they'll begin going around preaching in that way. Verse 31 is a summary verse. You see these all throughout uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 47, chapter 5, verse 14, chapter 6, verse 7, here in 931. We'll see it again in 1224, 16.5 and 920, but it just simply says this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galatia and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. It's just a status update from the author. The church is growing through the missionary efforts of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think that I would say that's still the status update of the church today. Not just this church, but the church of Jesus Christ. But the church is continuing to increase the world over. God's mission is continuing. It's continuing to be successful. And for 2,000 years, that's been the truth. And you've, you can find these online, but there's really these fascinating charts that kind of chart the growth of the church. And we sometimes think, oh, the church isn't growing that fast. No, it's growing exponentially faster now than it ever has, which tells me we must be getting exponentially faster to the return of Jesus Christ. Because eventually it's going to grow so much that it's going to exceed population growth, that eventually the full number will be brought in and it'll be time for Jesus to return. I don't know when that date is, but I just feel like every day is one day closer. Either way, you'll get it, right? But that exponential growth of the church, I think, speaks into that a little bit. Well, now we're going to turn our attention just briefly, and I'm going to hit these pretty fast, but uh, we're going to turn our attention from Paul to Peter. Like I said, between Paul and Peter, these will be the two primary movers of the gospel throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So let's look quickly here now at the work that Peter is doing in verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all these regions, he came down also to the saints who had lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Peter is now going to be ministering. Peter's MO is pretty uh, similar every place he goes. He goes into an area. He does something miraculous, he preaches the word, and people turn to Jesus Christ. He has an ability that I don't have. You're stuck with just my preaching, no miracles here. Uh, but for Peter, wherever he went, and again, I think this was attached to the importance of the expansion of the church at this time, God was doing things miraculously through this guy in order to accomplish his will, and I still think God does that throughout the world. But I just think because it's not all concentrated in one area, it's so spread out, we don't feel like it's really happening. Uh, but anyway, here's the deal. Peter goes in, he finds this guy that's been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years, and he says to him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and make your bed. I like the wording of that, Jesus heals you. And then I like the response of the man who immediately gets up. Could you imagine if you didn't believe that God had the power to heal? And you're paralyzed and you're in bed and you've been there for eight years and somebody says, get up. What's your response going to be? Don't you think I've tried? Don't you think I want to? But you just don't know. 
Now, this guy had to have a certain amount of faith himself to immediately get up. And of course, through this, there's this great number of people in the town of Lydda and Sharon who turn to the Lord. Uh, This isn't that far away from Jerusalem, by the way. Uh, Remember, the apostles were kind of keeping to Jerusalem at this time, and so he's not gone very far. This is about 30 miles from Jerusalem. He's beginning to do this. Well, that news then spreads to the city of Joppa, and so verse 36, now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did, And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, turning to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So you didn't even know they had tanning parlors back in those days, but he hung out with a tanner. Sorry. He is tanning skins, but it's animal skins, not human skins. Uh, Anyway, so Peter now uh, being made more popular because of his work there in Lydda, he's going to go 15 minutes away to the city of Joppa. There he's going to run across a disciple named Tabitha. I'm making an assumption here that Tabitha was a widow. And I make that assumption because uh, while she's in the upper room and and she's laying there dead, she's surrounded by widows who who loved her. And they were talking about all the great things she did, showing all the crafts that she had done. Uh, Maybe they all did craft sales together or something like that to make ends meet. But uh, these gals, they they loved Tabitha. Now, uh, this is a thing that you see often in the New Testament. You're getting two names here. Her, Her name, Tabitha, means gazelle. That's the Hebrew Aramaic name that she has, but in Greek, her name is unfortunately Dorcas, which means gazelle. It's just, so this is what a lot of Jews would do, like, you're laughing at the word Dorcas. It's okay. I I was doing it too. I actually, while I was reading this this morning, I said, I read it and I said, mental note, Sean, don't laugh at the word Dorcas. It's okay. Because we've kind of ruined that, right? Like as kids, we kind of ruined that name. Uh, So if anybody ever calls you a Dorcas, just say it means gazelle and just flow when you walk from now on. (laughs) But anyway, uh, this, this gal was known by her deeds of kindness and charity that she was constantly doing. Uh, She ends up dying. Everybody wants her to be brought back to life. Uh, What I find interesting about this, when Peter tells her to arise, what I want you to understand is It took no faith on her part to come back to life. And I only bring that up because sometimes when you're not healed, false teachers will say to you, it's because you don't have enough faith. Just respond to them, Tabitha was dead. (laughs) This is either on Peter or Jesus, but don't bring me into it. So either you don't have enough faith or Jesus doesn't want me healed. 
That's the reality. Jesus does not heal everybody. He heals some for his plans, for his purpose, in his time. But that's up to him. And so when Peter does this, this isn't Peter commanding Jesus to heal her. This is Peter walking and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit directing him to do this. This wasn't a sideshow. This was a plan and a purpose that the power of God would bring this woman back from the dead. And by the way, Tabitha might be saying at this point, what are you doing? I was just in heaven. I just started to get comfortable. I was looking for my mansion. Jesus had prepared a place for me. And now I'm back here? (laughs) She doesn't, of course, but that's how I think I'd play it. Even if it was just as a joke. But she's resurrected. There is this interesting thing, by the way, in the New Testament, uh, as you look at the ministry of widows, uh, you'll see this a little bit earlier in the book that the widows were being fed by the church. You'll see later in the writings of Paul that he had to put some strict requirements on what it meant to truly be a widow, which means you had to be over a certain age, kind of beyond marrying age is the way he's going to basically describe it. And uh, you had to have no family to actually take care of you. But if you did that, if that's who you were, the church would provide for you meals, but you provided an important service for the church. It was the widows who were praying day and night for the church. That powerful engine of the church of prayer, this was the widows. A pretty powerful thing. Anyway, again, if somebody's raised from the dead, people start to believe something cool is going on here Peter bringing Tabitha back from the dead, many people believed in the Lord through that powerful ministry of what Peter had done in that moment. Uh, It only mentions that Peter is staying in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house to set up what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next is through a vision given to Peter, the gospel is now going to be made available to non-Jews, to Gentiles. So Peter's going to get that ball rolling but Paul's going to take it and run with it. And he's going to be the one that's going to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth by bringing it to us, to the Gentiles. Well, as always, what I want you guys to do, this is your homework week to week. Uh, I want you to have a conversation about Acts chapter 9 with somebody. Something that sparked your interest in there, something that you see that you need to change in your life. Uh, Have a conversation. You can do it for discipleship. Uh, You can do it for accountability. Uh, You can do it evangelistically, but just take the time to have a conversation with somebody about Acts chapter 9. I'm not going to follow up on you. You're on your own on this. Uh, I'm just saying as you do that, it becomes real in your life and you become a hearer of the word who gets to now share the word that you heard with other people. And then I would say, prepare your hearts for next week. Just read Acts chapter 10 every day this week. I don't think I need to remind you, the power in preaching is not the preacher. The power in preaching primarily comes from the powerful Word of God. And if you begin the work of reading the Word every day that we're going to read next week, you begin to allow the Holy Spirit to till up the soil of your heart. And it's the good soil that bears fruit. So if you put in that investment, my sermons only get better. The more you read, the better my sermons get. That's what's exciting about this for me, right?
again, there's a responsibility on the hearer of the word. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for our time in Acts chapter 9 and to see the powerful way that you've worked in the world. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that you're the same God who converts even persecutors of Christianity, who uses those people mightily for your kingdom. Help us to remember that you don't have to be somebody special in the kingdom of God to be available to be used by you. Help us, Father, to remember that all of us can immediately begin to share uh, the things we know about you. And as we grow and as we get stronger, we'll begin to uh, carefully uh, prove these things to people. Father, help us all to be faithful hearers of the word and not just, do, or not just, uh, not just hearers of the word, but faithful doers of the word. Father, I would pray for us as a church that we would continue to see increase as the church was seeing at the time of Peter and the time of Paul. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Doug, close us out in worship, if you would, please.